Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, and welcome back to Superwomen. Today, I have the honor of interviewing Sarah Sophie Flicker and Paula Mendoza. We were originally introduced under the auspices of fashion, but I quickly realized what a force for good they are in changing long-standing, deep-rooted issues we have in America, whether it's women's rights, immigrant rights, rights of children. They care really deeply about these issues, and so we're going to be talking about that today. Take a listen. So thank you, Paula and Sarah, Sophie, for joining me today. I want to talk about so many things. First of all, I got to meet you. Well, I met you a long time ago, but I didn't know I didn't know you. Mm-hmm. And then a good friend introduced us, and that was before the Women's March, mm-hmm. you know. But I think I really got to know you during that time. So take me back to when you reached this moment of, oh, shit, it didn't go right. We got to do something, and let's go. Well... I would say as a woman, as a, as a woman of color, as an immigrant in this country, the oh shit moment has probably been since I was brought to this country at the age of three. The struggle of being an immigrant in this country is and has been and continues to be for immigrants uh, one of great uncertainty. And in particular in these moments in time, one that is not supported by our own communities in this country and also the government. But my oh shit moment of 2016, I can say, (laughs) was definitely I was at the Javits Center where Hillary was supposed to win and we were going to be part of this historic moment. And I was with my friend Reshma from Girls Who Code. We were all there watching and it was like 930 and that fucking New York Times needle was going (laughs) over to the Trump winning. It was like at 70 percent of Trump winning. And we were all in denial, and I was with my partner, Michael Skolnick, and he was saying, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen because he's an ultimate optimist. And I turned to Reshma, and I said, Reshma, they're going to have the House, the Senate, and the presidency. What are we going to do? And in that moment, it was this realization that our future as women, as immigrants, as as, as People on the left, as anyone that wanted any sort of equity and equality for this country, was severely at stake. And I remember on the verge of tears and being in a panic attack. And I, until that moment, hadn't realized that they had the potential to control everything. And I didn't leave the Javits Center until one in the morning. And then the next morning, I woke up and got to work. Wow. And you? I mean, similarly... Yeah, I, I think I've been in a constant oh shit moment my whole life here. I, I was born in Denmark and um, my mom never became a citizen and has always been a pretty staunch democratic socialist. And my dad is very left as well. So, you know, we've just been cycling in oh shit and um, trying to, <laughs> <laughs> you know, do better. But, you know, 
I didn't have one, which was the weird thing. And and maybe I feel, I mean, as far as like this administration goes, I kind of feel like I, I might just be, um, I think I'm reaching my oh shit moment now with the Supreme Court. Because when Paula just said the thing about, you know, we're, we also didn't get um, the Supreme Court justice that we were supposed to get. And, you know, I remember thinking about that the night of um, the election and I was not at the Javits Center, which was such a relief. I just remember texting so everyone being like, get out of there. <laughs> it was a like, dark hole of like, death. There was like a death whale. People were like Awful. keening and texting. And I was like, get out, get out now. Um, but, you know, I had worked sort of tangentially with the Clinton campaign leading up to after the primaries, and I just didn't have a great feeling. And I, I was actually with the designer Mara Hoffman. We had we have a get out the vote group that I've been helping organize for about fourteen years, and we organized two hundred people to Philly. We were in Philly. My daughter and I knocked on like six hundred doors, and wow. and I just remember at like an hour before the polls closed, we had this interaction. Mara was there. My dad was there. Mara's mom was there. And um, we walked into a barber shop right around the corner from the polling station we were at. And a guy like lunged at me and he said, I don't want a fucking woman for president. And I was like, yeah, that's it. And I never that I mean, the whole day was off. But that moment, I feel like that was it for me. And you know, and also like we knocked on so many doors and we walked, we knocked on so many doors of like white, you know, suburban women in, in and around Philly. And I just didn't have a good feeling about it because they were not with the, they were not with the Clinton campaign. So at any rate, I was also, I happened to be that night with my friend Ben O'Keefe, who at the time was working for Move On and we were getting all the numbers. So by like eight something, we were just already doing like meditation and deep breathing with 200 people in this depressing, you know, like catering room at some hotel somewhere. So anyhow, yeah. Uh, but but the next morning, actually, I was in my son, my two sons and my husband had gone home. I was with my daughter in my hotel room, my phone rang and it was like 9am, 830 and it was Michael and Paula and they were like, you know, now's your time to lead we're calling everybody in our phone book. And two days later, we were all at my house having a huge meeting. And it is as bad, if not worse, than we thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. I would say worse. I would say worse. Yeah. That's so, the oh shit moment. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the one thing that most people would think in those moments is not everyone gets up, galvanizes, and then starts something so incredibly powerful and transforming, like what you did with the other creators of the Women's March. You know, like I got up and I was like, oh shit, I'm gonna get my voice out there, but I didn't go and start in a whole movement. Mm. So what is, when you look back, what stands out most to you about starting the movement, creating what you created, and and the force that is still there today that you've then evolved? So here's the thing. I think that, mm, and I can only speak for myself, but Folks are, and I appreciate this, but folks are very often saying, you know, thank you, A, thank you for the work that you do, and B, how did you do it, right? And so for me in that moment, the next day, I was devastated. I woke up. I felt like I had a fucking hangover. I sat in front of my um, TV, and I watched Hillary Clinton concede, and then I bawled like as if I had gotten my heart broken by a lover who I was completely in love with. And then I got to work. And and then, but the reason why ultimately from a, it's being very honest, comes from a selfish place. Meaning 
I had no other option to do the work because I had to take care of myself as well. And it feels better to be in the thick of it and trying to fix it than to be out in the world floating like you don't know where to go and 100%. you have no 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 way forward, right? So so it's not again for me it's not this it I mean I do want to obviously help people but it's also a way for me to heal and move forward. And so I didn't have any other option but to reach out and go through my entire phone book and call artists in particular and have these conversations because I was lost because I had no way forward because I didn't know what to do. And I think that if we realize that when we are in community, that is when we're able to build something and move and change and make make a path when there is no path. That is always the answer. So going back to your original question, I think the thing that I am most, there's a lot that I'm proud of, but the thing that I'm most proud of is the community that we built. The, the, the community that was built and has continued to be built of incubation. So the Women's March will be remembered for many, many things. But I think one of the most important things is the incubation of activism and talent that we all created. There will be so many and there are so many leaders that came out of that, that, that space. And I'm talking about the 800 state organizers and the 30 national organizers and the 250 worldwide organizers that made the Women's March possible. And we're already seeing those effects move forward in this moment. Families belong together. Um, that dealt with the separation of families that the Trump administration put in place. The the a lot of the organizers came from the Hillary campaign, came from union organizing, came from the Women's March organizing, and and we successfully as a unit were able to stop a horrific policy, stop the policy within six weeks. We were able to organize effectively. In, in community and collaboratively to stop a policy and to um, fix something that was as her- one of the most horrific things that I have seen in my lifetime. Um, and that, I think, is ultimately also connected to the strategy of organizing from the Women's March around intersectionality, right? So a very long-winded way to say that the Women's March ultimately birthed activists from everyday people those that were organizing the march. But beyond that, the resistance itself for the past two years has also been the women that came out for the Women's March for the first time on the streets for other people. And we know that the resistance is 87% women um, making phone calls. You've seen people that are the ones that are getting arrested are women. The amount of women that are running for office and winning is inspiring. So all of that is connected to what I hope will be um, success in, in the fall and success beyond that. And not just 2020, but way beyond that. God help us. I oh, hope so. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's an absolute privilege, really. And it saved my life, I think. You know, I don't need to repeat everything Paula said, but I agree with all of it. And I would just say, you know, what's been interesting in about the Women's March is when we started organizing just because of, you know, where I'm from, my education, the work I've done, I thought collectively we were uh, much further along just on the understanding of intersectionality and what that means. And, you know, it was a bummer to find out that we weren't. But in the last... Can you define that for the our listeners in case I mean, they don't intersection- know what it means? When, you know, I'm speaking you know, a bit of a complicated concept. And if you are interested, I would start with reading Kimberly Crenshaw's article where she came up with the theory and the word and um, she really defines it beautifully. But with women, you know, 
the women's movement, feminism has historically not been great about centering issues and stories and the struggles of women from all different walks of life. And traditionally, like what ends up happening is the people with the most privilege and the most platform get to sort of like push their issues forward. So basically, you know, if you're talking about women, if you're talking about feminism, then you have to be talking about all women. And if you're talking about all women and, you know, what I loved that we did at the Women's March were the unity principles and really getting experts and activists and people at the front lines of, you know, everything from immigration or reproductive justice to disability rights to, you know, environmental justice. environmental justice, you know, all of it, you know, to the table to say, when we're talking about women, we are talking about 52% of the population. So there really aren't issues that aren't women's issues. And so, you know, what the women's movement and feminism, we would be at our best when we listened to the to the women and the people at the front lines of every struggle and the people who are the most affected, let them lead on their issues. You know, the people closest to the pain are often always closest to the solution. And when we uplift the most marginalized, the most vulnerable, then we uplift all of us. Like we all benefit and it, and we don't benefit when we only, you know, if I am a super privileged white woman, if I only uplift the issues that affect me, then I'm not doing any service to feminism or women or anybody. And also, you know, women are the technical heads of households. So we're talking about boys, we're talking about, you know, our husbands, our fathers our you know, so it's really, it's everybody and it, you know, and it has to do with justice and it has to do with equality. So I thought we were further along. We had some work to do. We certainly made a ton of mistakes. And, you know, as we all will continue to, but, you know, I'm really proud of that work. I'm proud of to Paula's point, the the collaborations between the artists and the activists, and I think we're doing an a, incredible job collectively of like changing the narrative, shifting culture, shifting ideas through telling stories and through art and through culture. And I do think oftentimes that's more effective than than pushing policy. And, you know, like Paula said, I keep waiting to walk into a room, you know, in the last, really in the last three years, like before the election, that is predominantly men. Every room, every organizing room, every meeting, every phone call. You know, when we were in D.C. organizing Families Belong Together, you know, and I'm not taking away from the incredible men we work with, but there's not that many of them. There was three, oh no, five maybe in the room? There was five and, you know. 20 women. Yeah. And that's been the pattern, you know. It's like every, I don't, I don't even get on call. I mean, and I love men, but I don't get on calls with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Please start so. showing up, men. This is your public service announcement. <laughs> I think also just to jump on Sarah Sophie's point and to ask, answer your question, just something around intersectionality, what is like practical in terms so people can grasp yeah, do it. Do the real is, definition. Yeah. Well, not the real definition, but a practicality of how it how it lives in today's world, because it is hard concept, a hard concept for people to grapple with if 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 it's new to them. So traditionally, you would say that immigration is not a women's rights issue. Immigration is a policy issue that affects women, but is not a women's rights issue. But if we look at the issue of family separation, I don't think anyone can argue that the fact of kids being ripped away from mostly their mothers, there were fathers there too, but mostly their mothers, does not become a women's rights issue. And thus, that is why immigration in and of itself is a uh, women's rights issue. And, and and I think that's like an easy way to jump into it. And you cannot, from those mothers that were separated from their children, 
you cannot ask them to separate their identities as migrants, as mothers. Those those two identities intersect, and the political consequences of those two inter- identities intersecting gives us the policy of family separation and gives us the organizing tools to fight for those women from a women's right perspective, women's rights perspective, as well as from an immigration rights perspective. And that is just something that's very easily concrete and graspable in today's political climate. And I would just add, you know, once you start looking at that, then you also have to add in race and you have to, you know, so and then poverty and poverty and then, you know, domestic violence. Yeah. And then it all falls also under the umbrella of reproductive justice, Mm -hmm. because what is the point in advocating for reproductive rights if we don't have the freedom to raise our children without the threat of separation, violence, poverty, state violence, like whatever it is. So you just start seeing the ways all these things intersect and that we can't just be focused with such a narrow lens. You often talk about bringing joy to the resistance. Um, what is the driving force around this? Because it always has been positive and, I, and and been inspiring to me to watch versus you can see resistances that are violent or angry. So tell me a little bit about how you decided to shape it from positivity. I mean, I just want to add one thing because I do think it's worth noting when we talk about, you know, the Women's March was, you know, by definition, a nonviolent, you know, we put out a video, we practiced the six principles of Kingian nonviolence. But I do think it's worth noting that when we talk about, you know, violent uprisings, it's important to note that like those labels are usually put on uprisings that have people of color at the forefront and and poor people. And, and you know, it was on the one hand, like a beautiful thing the day of the Women's March that there were no arrests anywhere, you know. On the other hand, you know, you have to wonder why that is when the the majority of people marching were middle-aged white women. So, you know, I just want to totally. throw that out there totally, and then get back to some joy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so after, what was it, like a, a the six summer. months? It was in yeah. the summer of last year, six months into this administration, and we were just all tired. We were tired. We There was a lot of infighting. There was a lot of grumpiness. You know, I've, I personally, I can only speak for myself, but felt like I wasn't showing up for my friends, my family, the way that I needed to. And um, for me, you know, this concept is not a new concept, and and that tagline, Joy is an Act of Resistance, comes from a poet named Toy Derricott, and my friend Ashley C. Ford, who's a writer, wrote about it, and so, you know, precedes us. But I, before the Women's March, I've always done a lot of trapeze and dance and aerial arts, and I would perform, and my husband was walking down the street last summer with my seven-year-old son, and he saw some circus thing, and he goes, oh, mom would have liked that before the election. And my husband told me that, and I was like, I am not going to let these people steal my joy. Like, no way. We got to do something that feels fun and is still like resistance oriented. So that was where the idea came from. Mm -hmm. And so since then, we've started and we have the Resistance Revival Chorus. And we perform all over New York City. And we've had amazing and humbling success in the year that we've been in existence. We performed with Kesha at the Grammys. We've performed with Philip Glass at um, Carnegie Hall. We performed with Carly Simon also at Carnegie Hall. And so all of that to say it's that it's a group of 60 women that come together to build community, as I was talking about before, to to build community with song and history and resistance. And so both Sarah and I and Ginny and the other founders are all artists in our own right. And, and 
for me and for Sarah, the intersection of art and politics that creates a new culture is where I see my voice being the most effective, but also where I see tremendous amount of possibility for change and long-lasting change. Because as we've seen in this administration, we can make great strides in policy, but then that policy can also get undone rather quickly. But if we have culture change around an issue, let's say gay marriage, it is much more difficult for that policy change to be enacted if the culture of the country around gay marriage has shifted. And I believe that we're able to shift that culture with art and politics and storytelling and music. And so that is also what what we use our musical platform for the Resistance Revival course for as well, is to push us and imagine um, the world that we want and, and create that within our world of the culture, the course itself, but also making sure that our values are aligning with policies and 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 movements that are aligned with us. Um, so we laugh a lot, we sing a lot, we dance some. Um, Sarah Sophie has done some aerial work as well mm-hmm. at some of our shows, and it is just a renewal of our souls, my soul. We come and we've rehearsed at my house and Mateo loves it too. He's like, mama, are you going to come sing? So it's just, again, coming from a selfish place, for lack of a better word, we wanted something that would keep us happy and joyful. And so it was Sarah's idea. Sarah was like, let's do a chorus. And I was like, what? At first I was like, that's crazy. No one's going to want to do that. But lo and behold, I was completely wrong. And now we have this place where it gives us joy. So one of the things that I remember very clearly back at the march in January in New York City was I was there marching. It ended. I went home and my kids were like, can we go to Shake Shack? I was like, this feels so weird. Here I felt like I was doing something really big and then I have to go back to my normal life, right? Mm -hmm. You guys get up and do this every day, you know? So I'm sure you take some support circle. So I'm curious to know who is that person that you lean on or persons other than each other that like helps you, pushes you back out to keep fighting every day. And we have such a big community at this point. I mean, you know, what Paola said about the Women's March, it's like, it's such a big community. And there's so many people who, you know, when you're feeling sort of like beleaguered and tired, somebody will like swoop in with like a great idea or a call to action. And then you just have no choice. You know, definitely my family, my kids, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I would say so I've been very involved in the families belong together in the children's separation. And of the past two years, we have gone through a lot in this country and in Some of us have been closer to some issues than others. But the family separation really took an emotional toll on me, like in a way that not even November 8th took a toll on me because it was so horrifying and so painful and and hearing people's stories around the desperation of wanting to be with their child and knowing that there was something that we could do, but not a lot. Um, And so, and it's also obviously very raw. It's only been... I don't even know, two months. And it was something that was every day constant. And being a mom was also just the idea of thinking, imagining not being with a child. I think any mom, just like their heart is ripped out of their chest. And then having my son home and like seeing something and then thinking automatically, wow, like what would he do? He's five years old if he like something happened and I wasn't here. How would he handle this? So anyways, all that to say that it was awful. It's the it's the biggest test I have had to go through as an activist or a storyteller in my entire life. And clearly I'm still going through some of that stuff as well. The thing that got me through it 
was two things. One, obviously my family, as Sarah Sophie was saying, the idea of my son being alone was the thing that like motivated me for other children. But ultimately also, and this is what I talk a lot about before this, and it was really put to the test, this concept of love and a real deep concept of love, not at love that is powerful and moves moves things and love that is is revolutionary and love that is action because there were many moments in that that time and still to this day that I wanted to stay in my bed and say fuck the world I can't handle this but it was the love of immigrants it was the love of this concept of freedom in this country and equity and democracy, this love for truth, this love for my movement family that I had created, and this love for myself to know that I could never forgive myself if I did not stand up to do something in this moment of great trial and horror. And so it was ultimately that love that got me through it and has continued to get me through it. And I think that for all of us that are living in this country during these difficult times, we all have that sense of love and we can all access it when we need it. And that is a thing that we all need to focus on in order to make this country the country that it should be and we want it to be and the country that we dream of and imagine it to be. That is beyond beautiful. You're going to mm-hmm. make me cry. <laughs> We're part of a organizing group of Voto Latino and a bunch of other groups. And we went to, to the border in Texas and that was emotional in and of itself. And on our way home, we were getting, Paolo was getting texts from a bunch of our friends who are organizers and, you know, specifically within or immigration. And, you know, Paolo and I barely talk about this because for me, it was like just one of the most painful things I've ever witnessed. They were saying, you guys are flying through Atlanta. We were doing our connection there. There's a woman who came with her husband, son, and daughter, and they all have been in detention. The father and son were immediately separated. The father was immediately deported. No one knows where the eight-year-old son is, and the mother and five-year-old daughter are coming through Atlanta. The daughter's really sick. She hasn't gotten care in detention, and and they... She's finally been released and going to meet her cousin in Florida. So, I mean, it was just one of those things where, like, we were right there, you know, and we walked over to the gate and there she was. And, you know, this woman walked out, this woman who was probably like four foot 11, you know, beautiful woman with a five-year-old daughter who had a terrible respiratory infection and you know, needed to go to the hospital. And this woman had an ankle monitor on. She did not speak English. She had two plastic bags, probably with all her life in it. And, you know, on the one hand, you know, and I'm not going to get into details, Paola can, but, you know, you just were staying there like, I can't think of anyone who's more vulnerable than this woman and this family. And, you know, that the fact that it took this huge network of people to, you know, by the grace of the goddess, get us to that gate at exactly the right time and to be able to, like, have an immigration lawyer, all this stuff, man, but, it, it, you know, and get them to the hospital. And then everybody, I will say to, like, to the credit of all those people working at the airlines, they were incredible. I mean, just incredible. And were like, pulling every string and everything they could do because, like, she didn't have an ID. How was she even supposed to get back into the airport to get to the connecting flight the next day? You know, certainly it's no shocker that... It's been predominantly women organizing around these issues because like as a mother, as a verb, not even as a mother who is a mother, but just somebody who has empathy and love and care. It's like you you just can't, you can't do nothing. That's for sure. A hundred percent. 
Wow. Okay. I'm at a loss for words right now. I want to get my shit together. So what you don't know about my family is we are avid LaCroix drinkers. In fact, when we bring home a 12-pack, it's quickly gone, and it's drunken by my husband, my two kids, myself, and now my seven-month-old son, who will not take it out of his mouth. What can I say about it? It satisfies our taste buds, and we love the bubbles. It's all natural, environmentally friendly, and flavored with fruit essences. And guess what? It's gluten-free, vegan, and non-GMO. Did you know that there are 14 LaCroix flavors that include key lime, tangerine, mango, apricot, and passion fruit, peach, pear, coconut, lemon, lime, berry, cran raspberry, orange, and grapefruit, and pure unflavored round up the lineup. My favorite is definitely the pure and unflavored when I'm dying, thirsty, and need those bubbles, and grapefruit for sure. Make the switch to LaCroix Sparkling Water, a healthier alternative for you and your lifestyle. For more information, join the LaCroix community on social at LaCroix Water. For a full list of retailers, visit LaCroixWater.com. L-A-C-R-O-I-X Water.com. So out of this, you guys decided to start a partnership. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? What your company is, what you do? how you work together as partners and especially in um, these, you know, you're, you're dealing with tough issues. So how do you, how do you remain strong as partners through that as well? So as a fun thing that Firebrand does, the fun thing we did this week, because you always got to throw in something fun, was back in, we were at this dinner last Thanksgiving and we were sitting next to this amazing woman. She's a famous chef. And she was like, have you ever noticed who Ivanka Trump follows on Instagram? And I was like, no, I've never even, you know, know she was on Instagram. And we looked and it's all these people we know, like within our community and really loud feminists and people who have been very- Chelsea Handler, Olivia Wilde. Um, Amy Schumer. Amy um, Schumer, yes. I mean, uh, Alexa. Alexa Chung, uh, Sophia or, Bush, did you say? Uh, Sophia, the, Sophia Amorosa from um, Girlboss. Girl Boss. <laughs> Stacey London, does she travel? Does no, but it's like Anyways, a lot of, it's a lot of people. Progressive you know, women. Shocking. And so we were like, hmm. <laughs> and this was right when all the, you know, stuff with DACA was going down. And so we did this campaign where we had everybody who either was following her people with platforms who weren't following her to just be like, hey, we see that you're following us. And, you know, these are our demands around DACA. And so we did another one around her comments around family separation, which was a quote unquote low point for her. And, you know, just not thinking she'll do anything. I mean, obviously, she's completely complicit. Let's get real. But to keep the story in the news, to get people to sign the petition to ask for the resignation of Secretary Nielsen. Not that that will even like change that much. But the point is, is like, I do believe there's, you know, we've had all these conversations about civility and lack of civility. And, you know, my feeling just is when you sell your soul and you create human rights atrocities like this administration is doing, like, at that point, they don't deserve my civility, at least, and I will um, troll them as much as I can. And so, you know, we had another successful campaign trolling Ivanka. With lots and lots of press. And so, and and it's not just press for press sake. It's it's there, there is a very concerted strategy around that. And that's what Sarah Sophie and I do with Firebrand is we do work that it is, a, it is, is at the intersection of art and politics and how we engage both everyday citizens and non-citizens alike, with the the cultural po- political world that we're in, and also how do we engage artists and influencers 
that have their platform and and give them the tools and the knowledge to engage on issues that are important to them to going back to this concept that we were talking earlier to shift culture. And because in the shifting of culture, I firmly believe that we then get the change that we want. And so it's essentially the work that Sarah Sophie and I have been doing and what we're doing and have been doing for the past two years, whether it was at the Women's March or on our own individually. And it has a focus, a specific focus on, on women's rights and feminism. And it has taken the form of Dear Ivanka campaign or using fashion to raise tens of thousands of dollars for issues that are important to us and to women. Um, so we raised over $10,000 to bail out uh, moms that are in jail for the Bail Out Mama campaign. We also raised tens of $40,000, $50,000 for family separation and then just creating, using that platform to continue to help and work within movement spaces to focus on culture and storytelling. And, you know, and just regular old organizing yeah. also, we do that. But, you know, just coming from this idea that I've always loved, that it's it's really almost impossible to hate someone whose story you know. You know, and when we talk about this country being divided, people might be getting their news from two different sources, but they don't turn off music. They don't turn off television. They don't turn off, you know, the Grammys or the Emmys or sports. Or oh, my God. This shows you how they you, love people. Yeah. I mean, and all that stuff. So whatever we can do to, like, stop otherizing each other and just get human with each other by simply just by telling stories and simply just by getting these stories into people's living rooms. Because I firmly believe, and I have to believe this, that I would say 95% of this country, the entirety of the country, so whether you're on the left, the right, the middle, wherever you are, 95%. There's a 5% crazies that we just won't even get into. 95% of the country, I firmly believe that if you would have sat with that woman in that airport with us in Atlanta... Mm -hmm. You would have helped her, regardless if you think immigrants should be here, should not be here. They should be locked up. They should. Her circumstances were so dire and her pain so great. Mm-hmm. And that child was so ill that if you would have heard her story, you would have helped her. And with that at the forefront of our minds, then I say to you, to everyone, that is a story. That is who we're talking about. These are these immigrants are, are, are being otherized and demonized and dehumanized and all of these things. But if we have the capacity and the ability to sit you down and tap into your heart and expand your heart, I firmly believe you will do the right thing. And the right thing is being compassionate. The right thing is being kind. The right thing is being generous. Uh, we are a country of great resources, yet we have a culture of scarcity in this country. We think there is not enough for us. And there are some people that don't have enough, for sure, but it is because those that have tremendous amounts of shit don't give. And so I think it's just a, it's a cultural change. It's a cultural push. It's opening that heart and believing that ultimately, if we hear someone's story, you will not be able to hate them. And we don't want to hate each other. I think the majority of us don't. Now, there's some crazies that definitely do, and we just don't even deal with them. We just delete them from our social media and we just don't invite them to talk. No. <laughs> so my last question for both of you is for those who have not yet gotten off their butts and gotten active, what is any advice you can offer to galvanize my listeners to take that next step and do something and be part of something and contribute? I would just say like if you're someone that has a family or friends and you organize dinners or you um, organize your kids' play dates or their birthday parties, like you already know how to do this and just like show up, you know, show up 
obviously vote, get everyone you know registered and and voting. But, you know, we have to keep showing up and we have at least a few years of like really needing to be hitting the streets and show up for communities outside your own You don't need to, you know, the thing I would say again as like a very privileged white lady is, you know, show up for the Black Lives Matter rally and just put your body there. You don't say anything, just listen, you know, and that is meaningful and it's meaningful to make the calls to your representatives. It is meaningful to to march, to rally, to sit in, to do all the things, but just show up and you will find community and you will find like a bomb for your despair there. You really will. Sitting at home and just feeling miserable and hopeless and stress like doesn't help anybody and it doesn't help you. So get in community, get out there. It's fun. Mm -hmm. It is fun. And you can do anything. You don't have to be every day on the front lines. You can make a phone call. You can go out to a march. You can, you can write a letter to your, to your senators, to your congressmen. You could go and volunteer at Catholic charity services. There's so many different avenues to get involved there's so many issues. Find the issue that's important to you. Clearly, immigration is my heart and my soul, but it doesn't have to be yours. And that's fine. As long as you want to get involved in environmental justice or you want to elect your next congresswoman or whatever it is, if you are not involved now, you are hurting not only yourself, but you are hurting millions of people that need everyone's help. And the time is now. And I firmly believe that if we are engaged and if we are involved, we can protect one another and we can save this country from itself because I do believe that we are in a pretty dark place at the moment. And I would just say, maybe if people haven't gotten involved, just remember that it is a privilege not to be involved because there's Mm -hmm. people who are living it every single day. Who can't speak up. Who who can't and and who are completely beaten down over and over and over again and still show up and have to show up because they have no choice. So, you know, I tell I think there's age appropriate ways to get your kids involved. I think, you know, the youth are super important and, you know, you there's create you, you know, my kids have done lemonade stands, they've done bake sales, they've, you know, there's a million like I said doesn't have to be fun, but for them, you know, I think it's good to keep it fun. Mm-hmm. I stand in awe and beyond grateful that you guys are on the front lines every day so thank you for being with me here today but rebecca you you, i'm just gonna say thank you and you have been (laughs) such a amazing support to the women's march to us we can't thank you enough and you all need to just know that (laughs) she's done so many things on the dl that nobody knows about but have really supported and uplifted and nourished us and we are so grateful for you thank you thank you thank you that was Sarah Sophie Flicker and Paula Mendoza. Don't forget to vote. It's real important. Next week, I'm going to be interviewing Jen Gotch. We're going to talk about her brand, her personal life, and just what it takes to be a female entrepreneur. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcast.